Philosophy. Descartes. Debate. The Mepropod. 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 The awesomest discussion podcast in the history of the human species. Oh, yeah! Let me tell you of an interview with an old man emu. He's got a beak and feathers and things, but the poor old fella ain't got no wings. Aren't you jealous of the wedge-tailed eagle? I'm better to da-da-da. Well, the eagle's flying round and round to keep my two feet firmly on the ground. Now, I can't fly, but I'm telling you, I can run the pants of a kangaroo. But da do 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 He can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. In that case, Welcome to the Mep Report, episode 147, February 1st, 2016. You guys really, we're only three episodes away from 150. That's like, that's a lot of episodes, man. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's a lot of episodes. You know what else is a lot? What's that? What else is a lot? It's the number of votes that Bernard Sanders has received tonight in Iowa. Yeah, it's too bad it's not quite as many as Hillary, but... It will be by the end of the night, though. No, it won't. Her okay. Polk County is, this, is out. Is this what this whole podcast? Yeah, I was gonna say I, I was not gonna. I was gonna. I was not gonna bring it up. I was not gonna bring it up. I How was can not you not bring it up? It's breaking news. Now we don't have to have this argument again. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but uh, but yes, no. Actually, uh, the the one part that we can all agree on is that um, uh, Donald Trump is um is uh did not do well uh tonight. Not uh, underperformed expectations. And uh, APTA apparently has won with Ted Cruz, again, pulling out the evangelical vote. And I think we can all agree that the Republican evangelical vote has been a bellwether for the country with the election of Mike Huckabee with, with Rick Santor. With, so anyway, um, so Ted Cruz has uh, won Iowa and um, will lose everywhere else. So I think we can all agree that that was a fun time. I have to say, leaving aside the campaign part, the, the sort of the ridiculous... I mean, smart people can figure it out for sure, but is there a reason that we have to have a system that involves, we send a bunch of people to one place, right? Then they all they all sort of arrange themselves as to who they're supporting. Then they can realign to create viability among some of the candidates. Then that gets reported as a proportion of the delegates that gets reported to the state group, which can then make a further decision about what, can we just come in, like, is this a difficult process? How about you just walk in and go, I'd vote for this person, hand in your ballot and leave. Like, is there? Well, we have a lot of safeguards to prevent people from actually deciding anything in our democracy, right? Like the <laughs> I guess electoral that's true. college also exists <laughs> yes. for exactly the same purpose. That's like, well, we'll aggravate, aggregate everybody's votes, also aggravate everyone's votes, but aggregate everyone's votes and put them in a drum and then sort of average it out and you know, you know draw some arbitrary lines around it. So there was You're... one where there was a sixty-one sixty-one tie in this one place, and so they flipped a coin. Do you guys hear about this? And Hillary won the coin flip. And I'm like, I feel like that just can't happen in a caucus environment. Like, I feel like you you just can't have a tie. You can't. Is this like we've had a full tie? Uh, and so president, thanks to a coin flip, will be, to be like. To be fair, that is better reasoning than about a third of the voters use to make their decisions. So I, I mean, yeah, like, like I, I don't deny that. But like, it's bizarre. I don't know. I, your I, description of the Iowa caucuses just reminded me of the creatures. What are they called? 
harmoniums from the Sirens of Titan who just like glom onto the walls of a cave looking for like heat or sound waves and they just like clump in areas where there are a lot of them and then they get rearranged depending on which candidate is doing well at any particular point in time just like scrape them off the wall and plaster <laughs> them on a different part. Exactly. That's, that's how I picture it. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm... I just I'm so I'm so not excited by the Iowa caucuses, regardless of outcome. Oh, I, I, I agree. Like it's a state that should have no say. I totally in agree. Ultimately, who the president's going to be? You don't think a 97 percent white rural uh, area should be deciding uh, should put any momentum behind any candidate? Because I'm with you 100 percent. And we're like, still the a better joke. part of a year away from an election. And, of course. You know, God knows who will be running by the end of this year. The notion that you know that. Iowa's going to put in place some kind of, uh, you know, candidate that will, I just... It's ridiculous. It's, and, and It's very silly. And I don't think, I mean, since we, you know, two of us, one uh, used to, and now two of us do uh, live in two large states, I don't think that New York or California should have opening primaries because I agree that then it would become about fund, even more about fundraising and all that stuff. But you ought to be able to find a state that is vaguely representative. Like, how about Delaware? Delaware is a small state that's vaguely more representative and not 97% white. Delaware is a corporation, you know? right? Like, Delaware is not actually a state of yeah. human beings, right? Like, <laughs> it's a that, Delaware is a terrible state. <laughs> Our, our our former debate partner Brad would object to your claim as he is from Delaware. I think Delaware. I think Brad might actually recognize the Delaware. I think I think I had the conversation with Brad at one point that it was Delaware a corporation, basically a corporation, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that's basically true." I'm, can um, I argue I, myself real quick? Like, maybe is it the case that Iowans, because of this tradition, like are just so infused with democratic ideals and they learn so much about all the candidates that they're doing the work that nobody else in America would do? Does I mean, only have, because they have to do more work because of their system from 1858 i mean like of caucuses like if they would just get up to the normal like if they'd enter the 20th century and start using i write down on a piece of paper who i'd like to vote for i put it in a box and i leave like if we could just do that if we could get over that basic you know then they wouldn't have to do that work Instead of i the mean synchronized swimming uh motion i mean it just it like it it's and again it's like i don't i'm not you know i'm not i'm always suspicious of this well we just need to simplify 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 but this is a situation where i just feel like there's no like th this is a thing where simplification makes sense to me like it's not a con there shouldn't be no reason to overcomplicate a process when you're doing so with it like a tiny fraction of the electorate like basically and this is also the reason i think we've i think stories brought this up before this is also the reason that every election season all of a sudden ethanol becomes the most important thing every yes. four years and i'm always like why the who the hell cares about ethanol? because iowans care about ethanol really so we spend you know however many months and however many millions and all this stuff crisscrossing this tiny state again 97 percent white and then we're like all right thanks and then we go on to the rest of things and all this basically does is weed out the martin o'malley's of the world who suspended his campaign tonight mike huckabee who suspended his campaign tonight so i guess it gets rid of George the outliers who, but who or jeb bush sorry yeah who, who doesn't know it yet but is actually who lost to rand paul by almost a margin of two like a a factor of two. Do you know that that is one of the worst campaign disasters I've ever yeah. seen? The idea that his brother yeah. was actually smarter than he—I don't know—that's amazing. Well, I don't even I know think, if he to wanted. To be fair, it. to be fair, if he had run when his brother ran, he would have won. Also, probably he was he, following the disaster that was his brother's president. It's not clear to me that Jeb really wants it, though. I, I don't. I just. I just feel like he's not. 
I don't get it. Like he's his it's just terrible. Like how I don't know. He's just like a legacy lacrosse player getting into Dartmouth without <laughs> even submitting an application. That's like, it. Yes, I'll play. I'm not going to try out. That's also Fine. a tremendous comparison, by the way. Like it totally would be lacrosse. Like that's that's exactly what it would be. And he goes to like Chote, you know, or something. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's completely ridiculous. I do have an idea though. I think that one thing we could do, you guys know how they were doing the, the varsity and the JV debates was the big joke for the Republicans. Like, mm-hmm. um, and Chris, by the way, Chris Christie finished 10th in Iowa. So good performance by him. Um, so I think what they ought to do is they ought to do the same thing for primaries. They should send the crap candidates that everyone knows suck, send them to Iowa. Like, go ahead and get your delegates, and then you could be like, yeah, I won Iowa, and it's like the consolation prize while the actual viable candidates go for, you know, like actual the rest of America as opposed to the small, tiny percentage. That way you also would have – there would be a little bit more diffuse focus. It wouldn't all be Iowa all the time for like six months before February. And you could get people sort of like – and it would be like a participation thing, right? Because they'd get like their own medal and they'd feel good about themselves. You know, I feel you know, like – You know who should run for president just to, to prove the uh, the notion that Iowa is important? I think Kevin Costner should run for president. And then he would win with like 98% of the vote in Iowa because of the movie Field of Dreams. And he would just make Field of Dreams quotes for his entire campaign. And then a bunch of uh, – potentially legitimate candidates will all drop out when Kevin Costner embarrassed them in Iowa. This actually happened when Tom Harkin ran, right? Like Tom Harkin, who was expected to finish eighth and like finished eighth overall, like ran and it just, and he, what he did successfully, which is kind of amazing for an Iowan to do is he neutralized the value and the importance of the Iowa caucus entirely because everyone knew that Tom Harkin was going to stomp in the Iowa caucus and he won with like 60% of the vote or something. And it's like, okay, well that happened. So now I was totally irrelevant. And but then New Hampshire got this outsized effect, right? Because then it was New Hampshire that was the, right. Well, yeah, you know, and so, right. New Hampshire got like double. Unfortunately, it just passed all of the like normal Iowa, New Hampshire combination, which is usually like 40% Iowa, 60% New Hampshire, went all to New Hampshire you know, instead of like, we needed an Iowan and a New Hampshire. I was just going to say, no, that's perfect. We have to pass a law right. that an Iowan and a New Hampshirean must run in every presidential election so that that way we can eliminate them as issues as like possible. Like, and it can actually get down to like Nevada, which is a, which is at least a diverse state and we could start getting to real. And you know, what would be great too, is you could pass that law without telling them what they're doing and for like a year iowa new hampshire would be really pumped up they're like yeah and then all of a sudden somebody would be like hey guys you think it's possible they're doing this to like diminish our effect nationally and they'd be like no it's just about our favorite son and then like a year later they're like wait a minute why is nobody paying attention to us anymore you know like that's totally what we should do iowa and new hampshire candidate in every election that's what we should totally do done or yeah or you could just fire every pollster in the business and just craft some kind of Frankensteinian candidate made out of Iowa and New Hampshire values just guaranteed to win the first two things. <laughs> why would firing the, the pollster why do you need to fire the pollsters though for that? Because they you know they give you all this uh, advice about listening to polls and how you should dress and like forget all that. Here's here's what you do. You just get a gun <laughs> and corn and you go. You have corn you have an ear of corn. <laughs> the problem with that, Russ, is that person would then be president. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how you create of our system, in a lab a, a president. president. No, no, corn, because... Corn guns. No, corn because guns. we've, we've there, as you just pointed out, Story, that we've then neutered the effect. Like, actually, what would happen is that no, what this would keep doing... Because no, because if they were just... If they weren't from 
there, but they were designed to win there, then it would just be Oh, over. right. It has so to be. You're right. They have to be from there. You're right. Yeah. They have to yeah. be from there. Yeah. Yes. It has to be from there. So it's acknowledged that it's not a fair fight and that people shouldn't try as hard to beat them in those states. <laughs> Um, if you just have corn guns, if you, I am now envisioning, by the way, like a holstered, like two gun shooting, like well, ear of corn. What, well, no, with that, like, and then like a guy holding ski poles, and then like a piece of the old man in the mountain granite he, statue he, in his other hand. You know what grew, I mean? Like, yeah, he grew up in yeah. California. He found <laughs> his home in Texas, and he makes corn guns. He's invincible. You cannot stop him. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, He'd That's... win both party primaries. He'd just be yeah. summary judgment. We wouldn't even need to hold the general election. Just corn guns. Bring it in. I'm voting for corn guns. It, could that be his name, too? Could his name be yes. Joe Corn Guns? Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh wow. Joe Corn Guns is of the, the Davos Corn Guns. Firing the not, Joe Corn Guns. Not from the San Rafael Corn Guns. Anyway. It's true. That's I think yeah, but that that I think is what needs to happen because I was thinking maybe what that would do. See, I think it's fine if we actually start getting smaller states that at least have diverse populations. You know, like at least leading to more of momentum from one candidate to the other. But what if this continued and it just keeps pushing the actual like outsized importance of each state down to like the next primary? What you should just you'd eventually have to have like a candidate from every state in the union. And so basically, like, then it would be weird because everyone would vote for themselves and then, like, you'd have to figure out how to defeat the super tie. Every convention would be brokered. I think you know? as part of our reparations, continuing reparations towards the Native Americans, we should give their reservations the first vote in the caucuses. <laughs> That's awesome. In addition you, to casinos. Can you imagine? Yes. It could actually be held. No, it'd be perfect. You could hold it at the casinos, too. Because, like, they have tremendous infrastructure at the casinos built in, like, People could report on it immediately. There'd be no shenanigans. There's no shenanigans at casinos. You know? Yeah, it'd be a Foxwoods caucus uh, run by the, the Mohawks, <laughs> and they'll pick a candidate. And corn guns really might good. not do so well if that were the yeah, case. Yeah, I feel like corn guns <laughs> gets a serious setback from that. You might he'd, have to, to he'd have to name himself maze, like... Maze bows instead of corn guns. <laughs> or, yeah, or it'd have to be like, you know, like, like uh, of shock of corn. Father Shock of Corn is when, like, wait, aren't you Corn Guns? Uh, no, I am Father Shock of Corn. The minute he gets out, he's like, hell yeah, Corn Guns is back involved. Oh, that's awesome. That's where I'm Corn Guns, you guys. I wonder what are, what is the Native, are there, do Native Americans have the opportunity to vote? Is there a Native American population or does it, do, are they also, because I, are there, they are American citizens and citizens on the reservation, right? Or no? Or is that not how it works? Um, I think they're just, the the fact that it's a reservation denotes that tribal council laws in effect and that the federal government has no responsibility to fund or take care of anybody who lives there so those two things combined make sure that it's both extra legal and extremely impoverished and but anybody who's welcome there can live there as far as i know so hmm so it's, yeah because I'm, I'm trying to think of like what that would i'm what sure that, would imply. that people could vote in u.s politics if they i imagine so can yeah, they just get drowned out by the rest of the state, but unless they were carved out of specific, you know, electoral uh, zones, which would be awesome. What if they waited for a particularly egregious elector and electoral candidate, like, for example, Donald Trump or Ted Cruz? They waited and they had the Foxwood Caucus. And then when both of them are on tribal land, they're like, according to the laws of the land, tribal law um, actually uh, supersedes things. So we are arresting you in the name of tribal law and you'll be held in trial because they'd be on tribal land. And, you know, 
And and then like you'd have this whole big back and forth about whether you know you should let the candidate go or whether they were baited into it and all this stuff. It would be great. Why isn't this? Uh, I'm sorry that I'm jumping the corn gun. Here, no, I think that's but, reasonable. Um, why why isn't this the solution to the Syrian refugee crisis? Just create reservations where they have their own governance and their own traditions and their own. Uh, I mean, generally yeah, putting people sense. in concentration camps in Europe is like. I was going to say upon. the reservation like, system really worked well here too. But right? no, they're it's all not the same camp. background ethnically. They're all no, from the no. Same place, so it's like so it's like a. Camp. It's like that's a concentration town. Are, right? It's not a camp. It's a town. Like concentration zone. It's bigger. They have more room to run around. They're free roaming Syrians. Yep, and and they're cage free. And the reservation, uh, and and you know, I think the reservations here have worked very well. I think I think we could agree that it was highly effective. Uh, I don't think there was any damage, permanent damage done to you know the native yeah, peoples. Yeah, no more permanent than the lead in Flint, right? You just, like, <laughs> right. Like that advisor said, you, so your kid's gonna lose a few IQ points. Okay, fine. It's this is. I mean, look, certainly, <laughs> certainly the transit to the reservations could be improved upon historically. Like that did not go well, but. <laughs> Once they're there, yeah, it makes a trail out of tears anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, no more like, tears. We'll, we'll have Johnson and Johnson. will do the the no more tears uh, trail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! I don't wow. know. Something's wrong with me. I'm sorry, you guys. I apologize. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> it's called America. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So uh, like do you know what I did last night? What's that? Um, I re-listened to Map Reports 126 and 127. Okay. When um, were those? Like 2012? Well, yeah, to give you some context, those were the last two shows that we did then? before the... No, you weren't. You were not oh, married. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but those are the last two shows that we did before the Map Report went on a three-year <laughs> hiatus. And so, consequently, those... Okay. Those are the two shows. Uh, in 126, you guys made a bunch of fun of me for OkCupid okay dating and trying to uh, text Perfect Girl and for over. No, the that's 126 of, like years. of the episodes. That's yeah. I was just gonna say like that's a common <laughs> common mistake. <laughs> that is, and that I is. have the lost episode by the way, which has never been released. Oh, yeah, it was I gonna be 128 and was I, never processed. I have the lost episode. Yep. Oh yeah, I was wondering. I was gonna ask about that. Yep. Um, All and right, then so. so so yeah. then, but 127, 126 is super fun to listen to, as much as I'm being made fun of in it. And you guys are, we're all accessing my online dating profile at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's good times. 127 is the one where Perfect Girl shows up and does the podcast, and uh, our oh, friend, snap. and our friend Crack also was on that podcast. But yeah, just listening to that, really, I was like, dear God, this podcast is such a chronicle of horror. And great things, but but horror, horror. And I remember, and like that's the reason why I like physically could not do a podcast for the longest time after that because I couldn't go back and listen to that show where this thing, and by this thing I mean this relationship that I'd worked so hard to like create out of nothing. Listening to the show, like I could hear both the triumph of that and the like impending doom in in her voice of like that this is not gonna last. And then I was, oh, God, took the wind out of me.
Oh, man. And it took the wind out of me. And you had, I mean, some of our most epic shows, to be quite frank, are affected by, like, dating stories. Like, one of our greatest shows is the Christmas show where, you know, the escape from from the island of Dr. Moreau, uh, you know. Oh, my God. Which was a tremendous show, but it, it sort of... It was it was reliant upon your horrible experience. I think it would be worse though if somehow we managed to interview the girl whose house I escaped that I spent Christmas with. I'm like, yeah, you think? Yeah, so that's, that that's would be controversial. Well, by worse, you mean more epically, you know, bring yeah, people better in. for not me, sure, better for everyone yeah, else. Better for ratings, <laughs> worse for humans. Eyes on the prize, man. Eyes on the prize. Uh, uh, I just I don't know. To me, it was it was a very kind of symbolic thing listening to that podcast of just like how how futile it is to try to exercise control over anything you know it's like no matter how painstaking a work is or how much work you put into something or how well lined up it is like it could all just go poof for no reason for no good reason at all are you tying this at all in with star wars trading cards because i want to be clear about god i hope not i don't know something horrible yeah no this is all stemming out of a a bad trade from star wars card trader that got me off the (laughs) no i I don't know i had this image just of a just now story of having him with a bunch of pictures of like perfect girl and girl that he escaped island of dr moreau each with different colored borders to reflect the you know like digital trading cards of women that russ has escaped from oh i was was seeing it more as like a police board where they're like connect he's connecting all of the dots in your life and then the conclusion (laughs) it's like this one connects to over here and this set up this situation and the conclusion is there's no control you can't make what you want happen life just happens to you uh, this sounds like a beautiful mind Lana. yeah like russell crowe well ship. except it's not delusional it's not like if, the, if that would be if you thought that like all the girls were conspiring together that's my life right that, that's if you think all the girls mm-hmm. are conspiring isn't that wait that's one of your yeah. going theories who's one of my friends has a go. I think it might be, but I'm not positive. Has a going theory that you should, whether it's true or not, you should act as if all women share a hive mind. <laughs> I don't think this was story. Okay. Not me. I am the one though who like had my 20th birthday dinner with three of my ex-girlfriends. That so, I remember. Yes, yeah. I remember so that that's, story. That Same. would be the kind of thing that I would I think that of. Story. And I don't believe in privacy, so there's a lot of the parts that I agree with. I, but, okay. I, but, this is his theory. Then he says just act. Theory. Yeah. Act as though things that you do will be shared in the female hive mind and known immediately and, and you know, act accordingly. There's like it's it's funny, though, because you guys have talked about this in both of you. I mean, I, I I basically had two serious relationships before Clea, one of which was disastrously bad and the other of which was middling OK. Okay. Didn't didn't we meet um, the disastrously bad one no, at like a, no. a funk a debate function no. or some kind of dinner? Or no, that was like not that? the disastrously bad one. Okay. That All was right. the middling okay one. The disastrously bad one uh, was over before I even started debating. Um, that was that was in oh, fact I think in fact I went to the middling okay one when I was still sort of reeling from the reaction of disastrously bad one. So, and that was basically it. But the funny thing is, thinking about them, there that is such a non-female like they would have no hive mind at all. Like any hive mind that relied on these two people would just collapse. I don't know what that says about me, but I found two people that would not have been in the same room together at all, ever. Like they're just not the same type of people. So, but you guys just had a larger pool to draw from of these exes. That's why that, that thing about story with the you with the three people, that always blew my mind. I'm always like, 
man, you had three exes that could all were all you still were on speaking terms with to like go out to dinner with. Like, how does that even work? Yeah. How did I mean? Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, I had not. You know, I mean, you know, it's only the serious relationships, the really like super serious relationships I've had that end like, you know, with no communication and no discussion. It's all the like, you know. It's all the like few months, whatever. I mean, a lot of these people also like they were friends, but they were friends before and they were friends after. So like, you know, it's just not. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, be- by the way, I-, I should say, I think it's I think it's, you know, it's admirable. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> the, the, as, as you know, for reasons that we can't we won't go into the disastrously bad one was never going to ever involve a connection again, ever. Like there was there was no coming back from friend with friendship there. And the middling one, you know, I'm still once in a while. I I still, you know, like send you'll, a note on Facebook or I was whatever. Like say, one, you'll like you'll like a status on Facebook. Yeah, that's, that's basically <laughs> that's basically it. Contemporary passive way of keeping in touch with somebody. That's basically like, it. I'm but still it's alive. Not, and you know, you want to talk about things where you sort of look at the passage of time. Um, that person, because Clee and I have uh, been dating since 1997, so we have been together now for. Uh, I think you're 18... ready for the next step. You yeah. think so? Yeah, yeah I know. Well, we were together. It's funny. Something, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, we, we started dating in 1997, and we got married in 2003. That wasn't, I mean, you know, six years. Yeah. It's not like yeah. out, right. totally out of bounds. 20, it's 20 years ago. That's okay. Yeah. It really, it's funny, though. You just think about the mid-90s, and you think of it as like, you know, oh, the mid-90s. And you, you, in my mind, anyway, I still consider that vaguely recently. And then it's like 1995, which was 20 years ago. And I'm like, wow, 20 years ago? But, you know, that's that's how time that's how time goes, you know, I don't know. So but but I feel like I feel like you guys had this larger pool of people to draw from. I don't know, Russ, do you feel like all of the uh, things you learned have led you to your present? Apparently, everything's still going well relationship. <laughs> I mean, I want to be very cautious because, you know, yeah, is, I bring up relationships the on the Met report right now, Greg. I know. Maybe I should do that. Well, if I've learned one thing, I've learned never to make any kind of overconfident statement on a recorded podcast that I've learned. Um, Could you confess your love right now? I'll never be doing that again. No, but but Um, but the truth is, no, it doesn't work that way though. It's always when you talk about like disasters and oncoming disasters that things go bad, right? I mean, they're even with depending on what superstition you believe in. Well, the perfect girl thing was more you just declaring victory because of how that was. Again, that's why I mentioned this: the Star Wars traitor card. That was as much you being like, "Yes, I beat the system," as anything else. I mean, you know what I mean? Like you, you that was a that was a competitive victory dance for you as much as anything else. Yeah, but you know, if that worst case scenario is that Star Wars card trader breaks up with me, I think I can deal with that. (laughs) I don't know if you can. I don't. Which is really (laughs) story. I swear to God, I don't think I told you this when he was out here visiting when Russ is out here visiting and we were hanging yes. out here he showed me the star wars trading card thing did i tell you this i don't think so no no, no on no. his ipad he's got this app which he's checking on and off he didn't do it all the time but he did it a sure. fair amount right sure and he's got the pictures and he's like well look this is the one i'm the most proud of and he shows me and there's an array of wedge antilles pictures that are all mm-hmm. identical wedge stop antilles pictures. pictures stop they're wedge them. antilles <laughs> pixel they're pictures and they're very serious and <laughs> and he shows them to me and he's like this is the best one and he points to an otherwise identical picture i'm like why are you showing me the same picture he's like no 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 look and then i see that literally the border the color border is different he's like and if i can do enough trades and he gives me all this complicated stuff i can get one that will have a pink border and i'm like wait it's the same like it doesn't animate it's the same he's like no 
It's the so literally you're looking at an array like a rogues gallery of wedge Antilles, identical <laughs> pictures with different colors, and that's what he's doing. He's paying for a Crayola crayon to draw around the rim. That is why he bought a French belt. No, no, no. Was Someone to get else draws it around the rim. And <laughs> yes, that that's is true. A critical difference. <laughs> that's true. Right, I pay that for that service. <laughs> it's probably wedge Antilles. That that service that they provide. I just couldn't. I'm like, wait, if only what? one of us could do Photoshop. We could solve this problem like even if it was a picture like in profile if it was like if it was like the dating site thing where like you see the person in half in shadow you know the famous like you know the the, like pat like princess of power right if you get that sort of thing i could see that this is the same picture it's not even bigger or smaller it's not like oh you get a picture that's five times as large it's the same picture with just a different you know this is where i will tell one of my favorite anecdotes about russ since russ has given us the real theme of this show which is Making fun. Have of fun Russ. with Russ. Like, yes, which is because clearly the moral nihilism. of the story is that's nihilism when the is, shows yeah. were really the best. <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorite anecdotes about Russ is that Russ loves, as I do, as um, you do, I, I think to as as with all things, Greg, Russ and I love it a lot. You love it to a slightly lesser extent. Yes. Uh, what is sports, this? I'm sorry. What did you love? What sports I've... video games? Okay. So, yes. I do and, love it, though, but not as much as you. But right, I do love you it. do love it. And I think, I don't know if you create a lot of dynasties of seasons of, you know, Red Sox seasons or Steelers seasons or whatever team that you really like. Oh, I should do a and Steelers then play one. Them, yeah, and That's play them idea. over and over again. So Russ will do this, and Russ will play baseball seasons where he goes routinely 162-0 and and then sweeps the playoffs, unsurprisingly, after your 162-0 and season. I do not understand why or how this is fun. Like, I lo- love sports video games at the same level that Russ does, and I will look at it, and he'll be like, look at these statistics. I have, I've set the record with 700 home runs this year, not career, this year. And I'm like, why, why is this fun? And he's like, they're undefeated. And I'm like, why is this fun? No, the games are never competitive. That's exactly what I'm saying. Why is this fun? And I don't, but Russ does this, like has several different video games in several different seasons of literally perfect seasons. Yes. Um, and so you just like to line everything up in a row. It's all the same. It's all the same. Yeah. That's what Russ sees as a masterpiece well, in video. It's not so the so identical much... Antilles. Makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much creating a perfect atmosphere of competition as the end game of mastering a video game. It's creating this right. kind of like protean team of supermen who can like right, annihilate right. other teams with a mere look, and you and and it's also because those other teams are comprised by the computer who is set up as your adversary by the game. Do you, you want to ultimately sure. like completely break and humiliate the computer like that? It's that's the objective of the game. So you're really taking like. out your frustrations on computer AI for well, many, many years. Because I can, I can appreciate that. Like I remember being very pissed at computers and stuff that they did to me after yeah. Ghosts and Goblins and the whole the, you feel strong welling in your body as the princess is not in the castle. And I was like, what? I, that anger was taken out later on on freaking <laughs> uh, Mike Messina and the Yankees when I was destroying them. That I'm with you on. I can totally do, get that. Do you that. remember how hard the like MVP mode was when we first tried it yes, on, uh, yes. on that baseball game. It was yes. it was impossible, and the computer seemingly was cheating at every turn and was doing things. And you that talked about that impossible. on a MEP report, incidentally. You yeah. talked about being zen, like having to enter a state, a trance, to be able to do well in MVP mode. And so I guess part of my, whatever you want to call it, uh, pathology, probably, 
is that I can enjoy this kind of revenge on the cheating computer for years after I've already solved the equation of, of how to beat it. Like, for years, I could still get enjoyment out of beating them 15 to nothing on their hardest difficulty. So. But what they need to do is enter a mod where the computer can actually beg for mercy so that you could feel even better about it. It's just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, please. another perfect season. I'm please sorry, please let me win. Out. No, please. Washington General, suck take, it. Take the disc out, please. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's... please just just break the disc in half Throw it i do away. have a, i do have a theory about this something. though and i think story story will probably identify uh, you know this this is a this is a guess i have i don't know whether russ okay. can agree with it or not but so um so story and i of course story roots for the seattle mariners i root for the boston red sox uh russ roots for the new york yankees somehow we've all remained friends despite this reality and we've all moved far away from those cities. Yeah. We have. And despite that, we're still, you know, we still love our baseball teams. So here's the thing that I think is interesting. For I remember very well in 2003 when Tim Wakefield gave up the home run to Aaron Goddamn Boone. And, you know, and people were cheering outside my window because I had just gotten down to New York and it was awful, right? I remember the joy, the absolute joy. I even talked to Adam Zimmerman that night when, when like they won, uh, when they conf you know they came back against the Yankees, greatest comeback in the history of professional sports, when they won in the World Series, and it was great. Like, and I remember feeling an incredible amount of joy. And I remember listening to sports radio, and one caller talked about how it was so difficult for the Yankees, for him as a Yankees fan, because he felt like it was now no longer a joy to win; it was just a relief. And I feel like Russ may have been sort of poisoned a little bit with this desire to win, even if winning, like, it's not about fun in this case, only in this case. In other cases, clearly Russ can have fun. But in this case, Russ needs to win at all costs in this particular instance. And and it's like the, I wonder if you've been infused with sort of the Yankee disease oh, where... I don't I don't you know? blame the Yankees for that. This existed before the Yankees did. In, in, in well, my, I know about your competitive streak. You've talked to be about fair, that. You but... did not exist before. No, the I know. They, the Yankees probably predate <laughs> me. By a few years. First, I was born. Then the Yankees came into creation. <laughs> Well, George Steinbrenner was inspired so, by Russ. He saw him. He's yeah. like, hey, you know that? That guy looks like a real Huckleberry. I'm going to make a Yankee team. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that maybe it reinforced. I, I think that for whatever reason, I was raised to make winning this kind of ultimate goal and then having anything. Or it might just be in my make my genetic makeup. Was like, it who, your parents who did that, though? Like, who did that? I primarily blame my grandfather for this. Um I don't know. I mean, it gets into, and I've been thinking about this a lot too, like a lot of epigenetic and genetic influences. Like for instance, I don't know if you guys have read much about epigenetics. It's fascinating. It's like if your grandparents were traumatized by, um, you know, because they, they didn't have a lot of food available to them, then you may have some kind of a genetic predisposition to either storing food differently or being afraid of starving to death more than a rational person would be like it's encoded because of their life experiences and that's what that's what epigenetics is my grandfather um, was attacked by a terrible terrible raisin monster it was really, it was really <laughs> horrible and that's yeah. that's come through since then it shot yeah. tomatoes at people it was really awful so um if for for one thing you know uh my grandfather who, who was clearly the most of any individual the most influential person on me um you know his family was murdered by the state literally so I have, uh, you know, an innate distrust of the state and of many just standard hierarchies and institutions. I just don't trust them because, well, 
because I know the story, but I think it's also a little bit more deeper than that, that there's some kind of programming that goes into being a descendant of someone who this happened to. Um, and so uh, when I was growing up, the kind of uh, other side of this is he probably just wanted me to have this kind of idyllic life because it was the polar opposite of what he had when he grew up. And so he would cheat on my behalf when we would play cards in the family. And so oh. we'd play crazy eights and I would look, he would just deal cards to everyone in the family and I would look in my hand and I'd have like four eights or something like that. I'd be like, hey, that's lucky. As a you know, four or five year old, be like, hey, that's a pretty good hand. That's lucky. And this would happen all the time. He would try to ensure that I won at everything. And so I kind of was conditioned to think that I should win at everything. And I got very upset, as, as you guys well know, when I didn't win. <laughs> And uh, I think that kind of started the, the start of that whole thing. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it didn't. It, I was wondering if it would give you like a hatred of cheaters or something, or like right, like like it would give you this sort of like I must do everything by just like rigidly by the rules, no matter well, what. You know. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the reasons, and I think we're all kind of in agreement on this. One of the reasons that we like debate so much, and the reason I like chess and games of other kinds, is that the world is so random and unfair. And um, fickle. <laughs> I was waiting for that. It was so yeah. random and unfair and <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like right now, like right at this moment, into the apartment. The like, irony. My point. Yeah, as <laughs> life hits you over there. <laughs> that uh, games are very uh, calming and welcoming because they're just very rigid structures that make sense that have a rule set that everyone has to follow. Yeah, and. There, and so winning a game means that you've, you know, very fairly and justly used the same rule set as the other person and figured out a way to come out on top. And that's why mm -hmm. they're logically they're very pleasing. And so, yeah, so that's one of the reasons we like games because it, it, they make sense out of a nonsensical existence. Kind of. I think there's something to that. We've talked about that with the sort of uh, respect that we have for the rules of baseball and stuff like that and how there's kind of a there's a there's an order to it that we really appreciate. I have to say, you know, I was thinking this is so funny that this comes up because I was invited to play this game recently um, through the you guys know that I do uh, I stream once a week over at the GOG, which is good old games used to be called good old games. Now it's just GOG um, Twitch channel. And uh, they wanted me, so they, they, you know, they like me. I did this short story contest that a few of them competed in. Interesting, actually, short story contest. is fun to watch people compete over that. But that was really good, supportive atmosphere. So they wanted me to play this game with them called, I don't know if you guys have heard of this. Have you heard of Secret Hitler? Mm -mm. Okay, so, so you already know the title is going to be great, right? So Secret Hitler is a game where basically you play um, one of several roles, either you're a liberal or a fascist in the run-up to the elections in which Hitler was actually, you know, nominated and eventually elected. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, and, and you're given different roles. And if you're Hitler, uh, you're, you have to conceal yourself because if someone figures out who you are and can assassinate you, they can win the game immediately. Um, but the fascist job is to pass fascist policies into office, and if they pass three policies, then the fascists are elected and Hitler wins and the fascists win. And if the uh, liberals pass three liberal uh, policies into office, then the liberals win. And, I, and they, so they were asking about, you know, she's like, oh, I'd like to play it. And I, I have, it struck me as I was thinking about it, and I decided not to play it, 
and I was like, why is it that games like this rub me the wrong way? And I realized that all games of this type, and that includes games like Avalon and Resistance, where you are playing these, um, you're playing either a spy or you're playing uh, like one of the government officials, something like that. And so you have to, you, you, you know, you're one of two sides, but it involves a lot of bluffing and sort of lying to people. And what struck me was that, number one, I don't like games where the mechanism is not about the game, but it's about how much you can manipulate your friends. Because, like, you know, I don't need a game for that. Like, we could just manipulate our friends anyway. Like, why? what, what is the point of having the game there? But the other reason I don't like it is, and this is going to, I'm sure you guys won't be surprised by it, but I don't like lying to people repeatedly, nor do I like being lied to repeatedly as a function of the, you know what I mean? Like, I don't enjoy games of that kind at all. Like, it just, it just really rubs me the wrong way. And I understand people can compartmentalize and they can say, oh, you know, but this is a, but, but this is, um, you know, but this is just a game and it's not, but it, it feels to me like I'm, I'm having to do things that sort of undercut what I want to do in my life as a person somehow. And, and it just, it's one of the, and I love co-op games because co-op games, I get to do what I love to do, which is to bring people together and have all my friends work together and blah, 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 and sunshine well, and also, rainbows. It's also hard but, to imagine that you guys could play a full session of Secret Hitler and then everyone would come out of it feeling wonderful about each other. See, that's what like, I mean. Every time you know, I watch a session, everyone at some point is kind of mad at each other at the end of the game. I'm like, why is this enjoyable? And the only game like that that I like at all is Werewolf. I was but the reason I like to say, don't you like Werewolf? But like, the, you know why, though? Do you but know why? Because I play the narrator. And so I get to um, I get to watch what happens instead of actually being a liar. I almost never play. I always am the narrator. So yeah. it's very, very different. So you just like to make other people manipulate you. No, because you know what I do as the narrator is I always sort of create an environment where it's much less likely. People, when I narrate a werewolf game, people never come out angry at each other. They're, because just of the way that I set it up. And and I feel like yeah and and like as a dungeon master like you know Russ definitely knows this story you played a little D and D with mm -hmm. me but like as a DM I've never been one of those DMs who's like yeah I get to kill my players haha <laughs> like so players can die in my games but I don't go out of my way to do it because I don't it it unless they do something intensely stupid where is the fun in that I don't know it just but it just strikes me just what you were talking about Russ with the game stuff it really is true like there's some things that really just completely reflect our personalities to such a degree that we because I feel like there are people that do compartmentalize I feel like there are people that are probably lovely nice people but they're assholes at diplomacy or or whatever oh, I right mean, I'm like that and, I mean I, I am the at games I am completely and utterly ruthless and we've had podcast where we talked about how I specifically like sublimate the super competitive part of my personality and put it into games so that I don't have to uh, F people over in real life. I can just do it in games and feel that that's fun and then know that no one will be hurt at the end of the day. Like I absolutely do that. But like and that's why I love co-op games for that very reason, because I feel like it just you know, I, I love working together as a team to beat the system. And I think we're all on board with that. But like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I, I don't, it's it's funny. I don't know. Like, Story, do you compartmentalize at all? Or is it sort of like, yeah, you don't no, like I totally playing games where people get angry? I okay. totally compartmentalize. And I mean, I don't think I would have been able to like be a semi-professional poker player for any length of time if I didn't feel a capability to do that. So I see it like, I mean, I think we talked actually fairly recently on a show about like how, like if I foul someone in basketball, like I don't see that as a violation of pacifism because of exactly what Russ talked about, that it's like, we're all entering a contract where we recognize that within these confines, we will play by the rules of the game. And if I like, you know, 
I mean, if I fouled someone in some way that like is not an expected thing in basketball, like I just like blindsided somebody. Well, yeah, I was gonna say them, like <laughs> like inject them into the you know oblivion. Like yeah, you just drop an elbow in their face. Like because that's that's extracurricular, right? Like that's, that's a flagrant the rule. foul. Right. So you know, so that's so I see it as sort of it's like it's like a social contract within whatever the context is. So in these games, we're entering a social contract where we recognize that we're going to say and do things that are not the way we would conduct ourselves normally and that that's fine and that that stays where it is. That said, I also spent my entire high school life like every weekend we played diplomacy or 1830, which is, if you can believe it, an even more upsetting like cutthroat game, which is a railroad game that is like 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 we would play diplomacy to like start getting along again as contrast with playing 1830. <laughs> wow. So we would play these games and you know and people would get really mad. I mean there were some people who were best friends who would like not speak for 10 days at school because of a particular like stock trade in 1830 or a a backstabbing in diplomacy. So you know it got intense, but um but I think that everybody still recognized like they were upset about it at the time because part of it was because we spent so much time playing those games that everybody had a lot of their ego and their energy invested in getting better at those games. And then it would really hurt when your whole weekend had been ruined. And then those things, I mean, it was like, like Saturday, it was just like, that's all we would budget. We would just all go to somebody's house and play the board game all day. So like, if you're out first, like that's meaningfully like six hours that you have nothing to do. We would literally like, we had a protocol where someone would like get, set up on the computer in the room that was sort of like adjacent to the game room and whoever's place it was and they would play like you know computer hockey or something but it was like such poor like it was such weak sauce compared to like actually hanging out and intensely still being in the game of like well i'm doing something you know it would even be to the point where like someone would have one supply center left and we'd be like do you want me to warm up the computer for you like (laughs) like that was literally a phrase that we had in our game playing it's like "Uh uh-oh warm up the computer i just remember so it's funny because i i yeah it's that's it, uh, that's but I love the... those games. I mean, I love those. And see, here's the thing. I think this also ties back to the thing with Russ going 162 and 0. What I love the most about all of these things, about gaming, about, you know, poker is a little different, especially when you're doing it for a living. But honestly, I think I even kind of like this about poker a lot is I like the close decisions where you feel like you're being like stretched to your absolute limit of sort of competitive ability where it feels like you're taking you know all of your energy all of your resources all of your wherewithal and then it's still coming down to the last minute and that's what i love about baseball right is that baseball is theoretically like you're never out of it as long as the game is going there's no being down by 50 with two minutes left you could always theoretically come back and there's all these situations in baseball that because it's a slower paced game and it takes its time and it builds that you have like just all of this tension going into it. And that's what I loved about close debate rounds going into speeches where you had to close it out. And that's that's what I really like about games is something where it's like, you know, especially a sports game where it's simulating that, where it's really close and I have to put together all the strategy to try to win a really close game that felt like a fair fight. So I'll buy I'll buy some of that for sure. Like I mean I I well and to go back to the debate example this is something that, you know, you and I experienced, and it was funny for me because you did not have this part of it, but 
um, you know, at the debate championships where I went with Jordan in 2000, mm -hmm. you know, we were up the whole time. I mean, we were up every right. round. We were the top team. We were in the top room at the end. We broke as the 10th team overall. You know, like we were just up, 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 up the whole way. Whereas for you and right. me, for a variety of reasons, you know, relating to health and <laughs> God and Glasgow, I mean, yeah. we were like up, down, up, down, up, down. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. like when we broke, uh, you know, that yeah. set, I remember very well that like, although I was, it was, it was, I was just as excited the year before only because it's the world championships. It was, I mean, it was sure it was pretty, it was amazing. Like that was amazing. But I was just as pumped up about that. Cause I was like, Holy crap. Like we dodged a bullet repeatedly because we were good. Like we, we were right. like, right. you know, and I mean, we, and everybody in the American tinge knew that they were like, Oh, Greg and story. Okay. Obviously mm -hmm. they should be one of the, and we ended up being the top two American speakers at, at that tournament. Right. And, right. and like, I felt that was an amazing experience, but I have to say a big part of that was I was with you, a good friend. I was mm -hmm. with a debate team member that I also coached. Like to me, that was exactly what you said. It was like pushing the competition. It was like it was it was stretching against the best in the world, but it was also doing it as a collective. And I really I've always liked that as much as I probably sure. my sport that I play the most indiv is individual is like tennis. In general, mm -hmm. I am much more of a team guy, much more. And I find like teams that are able to sort of overcome things together. That's amazing. Amazing. Like I, the, the, you know, what you see great teams do in basketball, like what the Warriors are doing at 44 and four. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible because one person alone could not do it. But so I'm speak, totally with you, but it's just like the collective point stuff, about so. how much fun it is to obliterate the competition because you have a perfectly well-oiled machine that you've built like the Golden State Warriors. Here's the problem, Russ. When the Golden State Warriors do it, it's a group of people. When you do it on your game, it's you who created a team and defeated the computer AI. Your so team, you, know you realize, I, are your people, right? They're I'm, you. I'm that analytics you do realize guy in this book who bought a big <laughs> share of the Golden State Warriors and used advanced analytics to design and recruit players and tell them where their inefficiencies were on the court. And but you know, he pioneered that. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't just. I mean, yeah, you know, having Steph Curry helped a lot, but <laughs> just a little. <laughs> and then there was that. But no, but I mean, there's other people besides that. Yeah, but but dude, you're not in the 162-0 example. You're also playing these games. You're not a GM. Like it's one thing if you were the GM and you put it together and you're like all that's kind of the way. Story, correct me if I'm wrong. Story, don't you think that both you at Rutgers and what I did at Brandeis, I always viewed myself a little bit and the coach is kind of a GM level in that I was training and building talent. So I love to see that, but I wasn't getting in and being like, now I will debate for Russ and Brad. Now I will debate. I mean, they were debating. So it wasn't like, you know, like, whereas Russ, in your case, you're like, you're, you're a one-stop shop. Like you, you play, you GM, you sell the hot yeah. dogs. Like you were every part of well, this game. De you know? Delegating is really only a process for being disappointed. You know, you really can't do that. What? You can't, can't let other people. That quote is brilliant. Statement. Yeah. Delegation <laughs> is only a chance for disappointment. Wow. We need to tweet that right now. Wow. <laughs> Delegation is only a chance for disappointment. That's. But I mean, you're right. You know, that is totally, I'm, that is a totally a rough statement. I'm right? all for watching people reach their full potential and growing and learning. Just when From the me. chips are down, just get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
I'm happy to assist and coach, but when a time comes, kick out of the way. <laughs> but you could do both, though. I mean, look, I, I, I was very proud of what I did individually in debate, but I was doing it individually in debate always within the team format. And I was proud of what I did as an individual speaker in the, the speaking competitions as well. And I guess that was separate. But the proudest moments I had, I told you guys this, was the final round of Ireland, Cork, Ireland, where the guy was like, well, you know, all of America's counting on you because I was the only American left. And I was like, great, thanks. But I felt like I was in the Olympics. Like, that was amazing, you know. And, and so I, I don't know. I feel like, Russ, that that's not I – think, I think you're being a little bit unfair to yourself, though, because you are a huge fan of the team concept, not because of you in the team. You're a huge fan of the team concept because you like team sports, right? One I mean, you like, reasons, you like being an improv team. You're on an improv team, not just like I'm going to do it all myself. I, I'm right? on a bunch of teams. Uh, yeah, and I hope no none of any of my teammates listen to this podcast because <laughs> because I am the reason that they're all good. <laughs> no, no, no. no, I'm not going to say that. What I am going to say is that the reason that I'm uh, mentally okay with being on improv teams is that I'm on so many teams that the annoyances from any one given team, the imperfections, the things that I would like to stamp out or improve, like can't consume me because I have to think about four other teams at the same time. And so there's a balancing act that keeps me sane. If I was just on one team, I would be plucking my eyeballs out because of the stupid everyday minutia of like, can we just get people in the same room to practice regularly? Can't we make it to this other show? Can't we book more things? Like, the, you know, all the infinite peeves that the – uh, perfectionist narcissist like has to deal with like so I'm glad that I have all these teams I'm like all right well at least I have a show with this other group tomorrow because I need more shows so it's and so it's I really about your individual experience in each of these cases no wait though wait if you really wanted to be just the individual you would have just stuck out with stand-up comedy though right oh, like no, I mean I love, I love the team activity I mean don't get me wrong if, if they're good enough for you I do you not mean. want to do stand-up I want to do things where yeah I mean yes I, I would hope to have a team of talented people who are at least at least equally committed to the activity that I am which is maybe me asking the impossible because of my insanity <laughs> um but yeah once you have that commitment and people show up to work like that's all I really care about is that they try what I don't care for is the sort of uh, Los Angeles disease of my agent told me that I should take some improv stuff, so I'll be on your team until something more convenient comes up, and then I'm, I'll drop ah, off. Ah, well, that's like a that, different. I have, I have no patience for that shit. No, no, right. That's that's sort of a different matter. But did you ever feel? I mean, so so you, this isn't one of those things where you do it, and like when your team loses, you're like you're like you, you know loses to like a cage match or whatever, and you're like. Damn it, we would have won if I had been both team members. Like, if you, no. <laughs> you ever no, have I mean, this I moment. take it on myself. Like, if we lose or if a show doesn't go well, I, it's I your immediately fault. blame myself. Of course. Of course it is. <laughs> really? That's not to say that I should have done – well, I guess it is to say I should have done that. I was going to say, yeah, and yeah, also yeah. that no one else could possibly have contributed to it because because Russ is the, is well, the look, star. I, but I also, I'm willing to admit you're the star. I mean, I'm willing to admit that. I, it's but, not yeah. about that. It's just that I, I – like, as far as I know, I'm one of the few people – there are a few others that I know – um, that I have, I've the stakes for improv for me are ridiculous stakes. It's like, look, I'm making it very clear. I'm devoting my life to this completely. There is no end game. There is no next thing that I'm practicing for. Like, this is it. This is all I want to do, and I want to do it as well as it can possibly be done. Once I make that statement, and I'm doing a show, and the show doesn't go well, clearly that falls to the guy, who, who the insane person, who, like, is, you know, infusing himself with as much improv knowledge and skill as possible, not to the poor people who do it, like, once a week, 
or do it casually or do it for fun. Um, and like, you know, as you go forward, you get more and more serious people and that's what you want. You want to be doing it with people as serious as you. But I, I always take for granted that I'm going to be the most insane in my commitment to this. And so therefore it's my responsibility to plug the holes if there are any. So when we have, and of course this has never happened on this show, but you know, since we've been doing this show for many, many years, you know, if we have an off night, uh, on the MEP report, if we do a show that's, that's not our best, um, do you basically shut off that you're like, all right, guys, great. And then you basically like pound your head into the desk and you're like, God damn it. They're like, story gave me that softball and I missed it. You know, Greg segued into something and I wasn't there. Yeah. I mean, like, to some extent, if it were, if it were like improv, I would, but fortunately for my sanity, this is more of a, a blow off of steam type activity as opposed to a, like, we must craft the greatest podcast. Cause look, <laughs> Like, why would a control freak agree to being on an unedited podcast if that were like lightly edited, lightly, right, lightly, lightly edited, <laughs> soft edit, lightly like, edited? No, a control freak would only release clips of perfect audio, you know, and that's not what we're about. We're about having fun and just relaying our our conversation to whoever cares to listen to it. You know, it's not about crafting the perfect encapsulated thing but we feel but wait a minute though but we feel good when we produce <laughs> a good show no 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 i i i but we uh you know we feel good though when we've crafted a in quotes good show and i don't think we view it just as a random accident right no presumably it's because we brought you know we brought something positive to the table so unless you're saying it's just that this in the first place was that we had great chemistry just hanging out and being in debate and being friends and so and we wanted some post debate hangout activity to you know enjoy that chemistry some more right and I think that's why people listened. But this is very meta conversation. But uh, well, I mean, that's why you know. I, I think I think your victory in podcast pickle, uh, podcast pickle wars, uh, proved yeah, that we had to that exactly the things that we were talking about earlier about. <laughs> <laughs> why did we win podcast pickle wars? The two and O baseball team. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so yeah, like I I've tried to be less of the person who'll throw people under the bus because I feel like they didn't try as hard as they should have or they missed something that they should have and I just take it on myself and be like, look, you're the you're the crazy person who takes eight thousand classes and does eight thousand teams. So you should see the angles, you know, first. Yep. It's uh that's definitely that's definitely the case. Do you so uh, yeah, it's interesting. So you feel like the now have you do you feel like with these various things that you do that you have now controlled your competitive instincts in a positive way. Have you has have they mellowed at all? I think once I quit law school, I, I I officially like controlled my competitive instincts in a positive way. I was like, okay, I know if I if I finish law school, I'm going to ruin people's lives. I don't want to do that. So how about something that if I do well, it will only improve other people's lives? Okay, mm-hmm. comedy, great, done. <laughs> <laughs> I see. That was the calculus. So from then, you know, at least uh, worst case scenario, I would be a bad comic, which isn't really harmful to anyone for more than, uh, you know, 15 minutes at a time. So, yes. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Well, I, you know, I, I find like uh, when when I hear people because it's always used as a positive thing when you hear athletes talk about it, he's the most competitive person I know. He's the most competitive and I'm always like, I always wonder a little bit about that because obviously, you know, you want someone who is an athlete competing in a sport to be competitive. Some people said that Will Chamberlain was a tremendous player, but if he had actually been 
as competitive as someone like Bill Russell, he would have been like so epically good that like there would have been no like Michael Jordan would not have been as good as him. Like there just would have been no person ever who was as good. Um, but he wasn't. And I often wonder about that, about like, would you rather have a supreme player who plays really well, but is not as competitive as someone who is like super competitive and scraps it out and, you know, is the gym rat and whatever, um, but doesn't necessarily have as much talent. Like in the end, I find that those things end up evening out where, you know, because the person who has the extra talent can compensate for the fact that they're not as competitive. And I'm always thinking to myself, maybe I'd rather have the talent be somewhat less competitive and enjoy my life more (laughs) than someone who is like super uber competitive and really angry if he or she doesn't win and like all that stuff, you know, like I I wonder. You officially are not on my basketball team. Well, that's I'm just asking. No, I'm asking. Like, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, um, I don't know that I've come to a conclusion by, about that. I think all those figures are equally compelling, like the, you know, the alpha who is extremely competitive and extremely talented, like Michael Jordan is a very compelling story. The character who is less talented, but extremely competitive, like a, I don't know, like a Pistol Pete uh, uh, Maravich or um, like, you know, the the classic scrappy uh, you know, undersized player is extremely compelling. Um, and even the super talented, disinterested player, I don't know, Deion Sanders, I'm trying to think of an example of that. Of um, and, and clearly to be a professional athlete, you have to have some crazy level of commitment, but maybe less than it could be. I think those are compelling too, because then we always think about what could have been if they really committed themselves to it. Hmm. Do you have a story? Do you would you prefer? So you said like someone on your basketball team. So you want the person who's hyper competitive. Yeah, I mean, I this is also so there's like, you know, this speaks to a different angle of my personality, which is just that, I mean, in game playing and in sports, I am much more like Russ, it, minus the expectation of winning, but plus everything else. Right. Like, so you did win the, the debate flow uh, award. Yeah. So, I mean, like like the emotion that I have for just trying really hard and being emotionally invested in things and caring about the result and that sort of thing, which is what I think gets translated to competitiveness. I mean, you know, and this is an argument that I had with a lot of contemporaries on the debate circuit, right? Is that people took competitiveness to the point of being like really ruthless in terms of being like mean spirited and awful to other people. And that's which kind was of like, a false choice. As we that's like the said. Bill Lambeer competitiveness. Yeah, right? exactly. Like when the yeah. ref's not looking, punch him in the gut. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so that I, that I hasten to make a distinction between that kind of quote unquote competitiveness, which is cheating or like bad sportsmanship versus just like really having the fire and really caring about the result and being like emotionally all in and super invested, which I, which I matters very, very much to me. And in a team situation or an individual situation, like I would put a lot of stock in that in terms of things that you care about, right? Like, like, you know, but, but you shouldn't be spending a lot of time doing things that you only care about a little, I think personally, like there's so many things, you know, pick something that, that you really are that invested in that you're going to leave it all on the floor. I don't so know. is it, is it possible for someone to be super competitive in one particular theoretically competitive activity and not in another? 
Like, could well, they be? Sure. I just, you know, I just would tell that person to only spend their time doing the competitive activity, unless there's, you know, I mean, and there's other if, things. Like if they're Toastmasters, for instance. Well, right. I mean, there's other <laughs> things you can do as a release, right? Like Toastmasters, and <laughs> you know, but like, yeah, you could, or you know, the map report. Like, you can do other things as a release to that aren't competitive. Like, not everything is competitive, also, right? Like, you don't have to be a competitive person. I'm just saying that, like, in sports, in debate, in things that naturally lend themselves to competitiveness, if there's going to be competitiveness, you might as well be super competitive as long as it's short of you know cheating slash being a bad sport i see that's so competition at all costs really is is well at most costs i know i know i'm just kidding most costs yeah (laughs) at most costs i agree with you too that that clearly the bill lambier style of competition is not one that someone should engage in i think only russ will defend that here (laughs) (laughs) defend bill lambier russ well some people have sharp elbows and that is their Sometimes elbows swing almost of their own accord into people's faces. And that's, you know, as someone who was the recipient of some of those elbows yourselves, not, you know, not from Bill Lambeer, as far as I know, but from other people, Russ, I uh, am a little surprised that you wouldn't be more, you know, anti-elbow like, you know. Why? Because I took one that broke my nose. Several occasions. Yes. Yeah. yeah, That was a good elbow. Uh, (laughs) My former uh, debate partner. Um yeah, no, I mean, I, what, what, what am I? What position am I taking here? That I that it's you should fight dirty. You should do what is necessary. That you should. Take well, do all, you all fight measures. dirty or not? Like, is there is it? Are you in a competition at all costs? I feel like your answer is probably not. I feel I like mean, you're not at all costs. God, I don't even know what that means in improv. Like, how do you how do you fight <laughs> dirty and well, to is entertain improv that people competitive? more? I know there's cage matches, but like, it's not innately a competitive event at the same level as a sport. It really is isn't. It? I mean, it's competitive yeah. in that, like, look, if you're on stage and you know that there's another really hot team that's going to come on, like, you, you want to outdo each other. You want to be the team that the audience remembers at the end of the night. That's kind of where the competitiveness begins and ends. Um, and But, I mean, am I going to, like, poison the soup of another team that's going up, you know, the same night as me? Like, of course not. That has nothing to do sure. with anything. I, I just don't – it doesn't really – like, my win is not really ever at the expense of anybody else in terms right. of improv, so that stuff doesn't really come into play. So my, you know, average everyday cheating exercises like uh, uh, taking cognitive enhancing supplements and stuff like that. Like, I don't, you know, it doesn't harm anybody. That's just regular good old cheating. That's just yeah, because because when the improv, when your improv team wins, every other improv team also wins. Oh. A rising tide lifts all boats. Somebody once said that. That's true, but not in the cage match where it's either yeah. you or the other. Some president speaking about improv once said. <laughs> once said at this time. <laughs> As I try to bring up other quotes. Uh, well, one thing we can say for sure, guys, is that, uh, you know, our, our podcast, A Rising Tide, lifts both our show and all other shows. And so if you've liked what you've heard, since we have come to the end of an hour, if you've liked what you've heard tonight, uh, we hope that you will uh, let us know about it. We hope that you'll uh, tell us whether you think that uh, Russ's competitive streak, um, which allows him to cheat only when it hurts no one else, according to his own calculus, is appropriate. And whether you're happy that even in episode 147, Russ continues to uh, be standing and talking to us about, um, despite his failed relationships, about how he, too, is around to cheat some more. Say goodbye, everybody. I just can't lose. That's it. It's hard to lose. (laughs) That's what it's all about. 
Losing in love, <laughs> he wins in love. If you win in everything else, you'll stop losing in love, right? Uh, that's, that's it. Yeah, it's on. It's my fault. That's, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> Try harder next podcast. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> God damn it. He was my chasing fault. a female <laughs> he knew and as he shot past, I heard him say, "She can't fly, but I'm telling you, she can run the pits of a kangaroo." But I don't She got live, but I'm telling you, she can run the pants of a kangaroo. Well, there is a moral to this ditty, um, better did da da da. Frost can sing, but he ain't pretty, um, better did da da da. Duck can swim, but he can't sing, nor can the eagle on the wing. Emu can't fly, but I'm telling you, he can run the pants of a kangaroo. Well, the kookaburra laughed and he said, it's true. Um, ba-da-da-da-da-da. Ah!